Good afternoon, five people. It is James here from Fit to Last. Hope you are well, and welcome to today's broadcast. This is a three-part series relating to different aspects of stress and stress management. Now, recently, I was fortunate enough to sit down with Oliver Patrick, who is the executive director of the Via V Clinic on Harley Street in London. Now, Oliver is a world-leading expert in lifestyle management, and we spoke in detail about adrenal fatigue, about stress resilience, and about sleep hygiene. Now, Oliver very kindly provided some considerable insights into some of the uh, fallacies and misnomers associated with these areas, and also some actionable suggestions on improving stress management. So without further ado, here's part three of our three-part series about sleep hygiene, and this is Oliver Patrick. Hi folks, it's uh, James here from Fit to Last. Hope we all are well. I'm here with Oliver Patrick, who is the director of the VAV Academy. How are you today, sir? I'm well, very well. Fantastic. Now, on the menu today, we're talking about sleep hygiene, which is a term that, it's a broad topic, but I don't think it's it's necessarily in the, in, in the common vernacular. So how would you define um, sleep hygiene? Uh, I remember when I first heard sleep hygiene, I thought I was being questioned on my... <laughs> my evening uh, washing routine. I, and the person raising it with me, I thought, this is no place for you to be dealt with, sir. So um, sleep hygiene really is a, is a term that defines how we prepare for sleep. You know, what, what, is, what is the way in which we give physiological, mental triggers that tells our physiology we're going from one state of being awake into another state of unconsciousness. Yeah, and sleep hygiene is really around the, the behaviours and the activities that help us transition effectively from daytime to nighttime, or from sorry from wake time to sleep time, uh, and and those are some of the things that, that lots of people have forgotten and uh, have been eradicated by modern day living. What are the benefits of quality sleep? I appreciate besides now waking up and feeling knackered, but but, but besides that, what's the impact of uh, what, what? Why is why is sleep so important? What's the value of it? Short and long term. Short and long term. There's still much about sleep not understood. You know, and again, in my physiology, there are specialist sleep physiologists who will go into more detail. But what we clearly understand is it's when we recover. You know, it's, it's a hugely important time for the filing of memories and consolidation of what we choose to keep and what we choose to discard from a memory point of view. It's a hugely important time for the recovery of energy and for, for a down-tuning of our physiology to allow um, the cellular processes of energy to be cleared and, and prepared for the, the following day. What, what's really interesting with sleep is, is the need for deep sleep. So we have these different stages of sleep. Most people will be familiar with um, this phrase rapid eye movement where we have our dream sleep, then there's light sleep, and then there's deep sleep. And, and what we see is this great need for the, the health benefits of deep sleep. In particular, its role in the production of a sleep hormone, melatonin. And melatonin ever more being cited as being a very, very powerful antioxidant and a, a trigger for hormones that affect our, our very sort of muscle mass retention and, and perhaps our longevity like growth hormone. So there are things going on you know, behind the scenes when we sleep in terms of memory consolidation, and learning, the clearing of the, the sort of toxic elements of energy production during the day. But in the deeper stages of sleep, we undoubtedly are producing certain hormones that have a direct role in our disease resilience and our anti-aging capability, which means that sort of bundle of, of reasons to sleep well is, is a big bundle. Is dreaming a bad thing? Uh, it's a good question. And excessive dreaming would naturally infer that you're not going into enough deep sleep. Now, 
whether someone remembers their dream or doesn't remember their dream, it, it's hard to quantify what is excessive dreaming or not. Excessive dreaming or vivid dreaming is often used as a simple subjective way of suggesting the individual is in light sleep or REM sleep for too much of the night. You know, the, the, the idea is we get our real health benefits when we get into deep sleep. And if we're spending too much of our time in light sleep or in dream sleep, we won't get that melatonin production, we won't get that energy restoration, and we won't get that anti-aging benefit. So dreaming is, is normally correlated with, with lighter sleeping. Um, if someone remembers every bit of their dreams, that might not reflect that it's a big volume, but they just have a, a better clarity in, in recalling it. But on the, the whole, if someone is dreaming more than, than they would do normally or dreaming more vividly, that is, it raises the question, why might they be sleeping lighter? And therefore, what are they doing before they go to sleep that they weren't doing before, perhaps? Now, over and above the potential danger in unfiltered admissions, is, 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 is that, is, is that, would, would that be the same thing as in talking in your sleep? Would, would that mean that you're uh, in a lighter version of sleep than if, you, if, you're, if you're deeper? Is that... It would be. So in your deep sleep, you won't be talking. Yeah. So in that stage, it again will be a lighter stage of sleep, which again, if it's, if it's for hours, then it would suggest that your body's not going to deeper stages. If it's in lighter, it may not reflect anything more sinister than your body in that REM sleep is able to, to communicate. So the, the, what we do in the dreams, I know that there'll be people who interpret the meaning of the dreams and, and, and there is you know, certainly Dangerous. logic to much of that. Dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And again, not, not an area I'm specialised in at all. But where we're wary, where someone says, I've, I'm having vivid dreams, I'm, I'm speaking out in the night, or I'm remembering my dreams much more than normal, the question what we're raising there, which again is simple, is are they in light sleep more than they have been previously at the expense, therefore, of deep sleep? And, and the best example of that is alcohol. So alcohol is something that, that some people may or may not have indulged in, in excess. And, and there's that classic sense of people you know, going out on a boozy night, passing out, but waking up the next day exhausted. Now, anyone particularly you know, who's, who's reaching the riper ages of mid-30 plus will, will notice that, that that waking up exhausted is increasingly detrimental. And, and what you're seeing there is clearly this concept that length of sleep can't be all-defining. You know, where everyone gets to, is my sleep enough? And this concept of six to eight hours or whatever, you know, I, I've slept 10 hours after a boozy night and I've woken up feeling like I've had one hour sleep. And, and that's a very good example of what light sleep is versus deep sleep. Um, and alcohol suppresses the body's ability to go into those deeper stages of recovery. People may have vivid dreams that they don't remember, but it's very unlikely they'll get that restorative part of sleep, which is why the next day they'll wake up feeling tired. And the next day, certain behaviours might be mediated by the lack of quality energy restoration from sleep, i.e. chasing down high-carbohydrate foods, i.e. being moody because the body's producing a bit more adrenaline to keep them upright and going. Um, being, you know, a grouchy, dehydrated, unrecovered version of yourself. So, you know, within that, the, the concept of light sleep versus deep sleep is, is best explained to the layman's by that feeling you've had when you just have a little bit too much alcohol and you wake up feeling knackered, but you had plenty of sleep. Um, sleep quality, not sleep length, is, is what we're interested in. On that note of, uh, just in terms of sleep hygiene, I know, I know one of the things that they will talk about is, is the presence of electronics. Yeah. Now... And I also know people who use Fitbits or Jawbones or that kind of thing. Do you think that that, as, as an electronic device, would that contribute to any problems you're having with sleeping, even though it's supposed to measure? There's a, there's a question around electromagnetics, you yeah. know, so electric, electromagnetic forces, which is taking you right to the sort of left-hand edge of, of healthcare. And there's 
some people who now can sort of monitor where the plugs are in relation to sleeping. And, and certainly we've seen cases of people who have just identified that electromagnetic forces might be playing a role in their sleep quality and they have sort of de-plugged their bedroom or moved the position of plugs or certainly excluded things from being plugged in in and around their, their head and found a notable difference. Yeah, again, and a measurable difference on the technologies we use. Um, so there's that, that question mark, but that's one way you'd say there's nothing to lose from that and disengaging from technology before bed is, is absolutely scientifically sound. So not necessarily the plug emissions themselves, but the interfacing with technology undoubtedly. The, the question is how that person interacts with their Fitbit or their, or their jawbone and, and whether it's adding a pressure to the quantification of sleep. You know, because good sleep quality is around disengaging. You know, it, it's, it's that ability to say that day is done, you know, the world is at peace, let me now switch off. If there's a sensation of quantification or, or putting a metric on that sleep quality, then that, that counterintuitively affects how the mind would switch off. Um, and it's something that if that person is, is being too fixated on the numbers, that in itself can become a problem. It's a similar issue when people are worried about sleep and have a clock in their bedroom. You know, on waking up, they check the clock, they're immediately doing maths. You know, I've had three hours of sleep, I've got four more hours to go, and you know, therefore I'm not going to be restored, and, and it sets off a whole chain of events. If we're trying to make sleep around a real stillness, a real retreat, then the quantification of it and or other electrical devices being nearby doesn't fit with that ideal model. But individually specific you know the, the, the flip of that might be it might identify an issue someone didn't realize they had prove it you know very useful from a diagnostic point of view and and generate great value so there's there's a yin to that yang undoubtedly okay I, I, part of why i'm asking is because i've seen people using um a jawbone or a fitbit and to, to monitor their sleep and it's, it's almost like they'll, they'll wake up in the morning they'll see the read they'll see the reading and they chastise themselves for poor performance yeah and it reminds me of that there's, there's an old joke from Stephen Wright where he's asking how he slept and he slept badly, he made mistakes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and and, and yes. it becomes a situation where you all of a sudden you become judging yourself for something that effectively you're unconscious while it's happening. Agreed. Agreed. And, and I think it, it is down to personality type. Yeah, so if you put a, a sleep measuring device on the wrong client, it could very much be you know, counterintuitive. It, it really could be. So you need someone who's measuring sleep because they're looking at, at whether the impact of their exercise is, is you know, the proximity of exercise to sleep or how late can they get away with that mid-afternoon espresso or how late can they watch TV. If, they, if that person's really trying to use that data to, to, to control their lifestyle so it, it's the best it can be without influencing sleep, I think that has great scientific value. Yeah. If it's being measured and, and used as a, as a guilt mechanism or raising a concern around something that hadn't been a concern before, then for me, that's no, no value at all. So, so as long as it is one more competitive metric. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and it, it, it can't be a competitive metric because seven hours isn't better than six and six isn't better than, than eight. It's, it's the depth of sleep, which isn't at the moment being as accurately measured by these devices as, as people might like. They're measuring through actigraphy sleep stages based on how often you turn over and, and your movement cycle. And that's a pretty good extrapolation but it, it isn't the be-all and end-all. So we're using the wrong metric to judge whether sleep's successful or not, which is still length of sleep, and, and it shouldn't be that. What's the relationship between nervous system and sleep? Well, when we're looking at sleep, we're looking at 
the, the sort of neurology of sleep and which, which, which brain waves become prevalent. So during the day, our brain is sort of humming on, on these beta brain waves which show we're alert and switched on. And then as we calm down, we get alpha brain waves coming in. And then when we start to sort of meditate, we get theta brain waves. Then we go to sleep, we have delta brain waves. So there's a real transition of brain waves that we're interested in that shows the brain is, is prepared to switch itself off. And we've got a hormonal impact. We've got melatonin being produced. We've got other hormones. We've got cortisol produced at sort of three or four in the morning. So that all needs to happen. Um, but there's also the need for the body to go into a state of, of recovery. And, and one of the nervous systems we're interested in measuring is the autonomic nervous system, which is the nervous system that runs the internal processes in the body. And broadly, it's got two arms. One arm that prepares the body for activity and being alert and switched on and speeds everything up in our physiology and another arm that slows everything down and mediates our body in, in recovering energy, digestive function, and, and, and really clearing out the, the sort of waste products of, of, of generating energy all the time. And the human body, like any machine, has got periods where it can give out energy and periods where it needs to restore energy. And undoubtedly, sleep is one of our primary times when we should be restoring energy. So one thing that is able to be quantified is, as I go to sleep, does my body go into recovery? And, and that ties up very nicely with whether the body is going into deep sleep stages. It ties up very nicely whether the body's producing the right sleep hormones. And it's a metric that can be measured through heart rate variability. So we measure through sort of the complex interactions of beat to beat changes in heartbeat, whether as an individual falls asleep, they go into physiological recovery or not. If they do, we can expect all those rich benefits of, of good quality sleep. If they don't, we can expect them to wake up the following day, not as refreshed as they could be, and potentially, not only is that effective on, on some physiological elements, like mentioned previously, it could lead them to behaviours like reaching for high sugar foods, reaching for caffeine, reaching for nicotine, uh, and being a sort of moody, angry version of themselves. So the, the, there's not one system that defines whether sleep itself is good or bad. It's a complex interaction of different systems, brain, hormones, you know, autonomic nervous system, digestive system, all those elements. But by looking at whether the individual goes into good quality recovery, we get a good marker of whether sleep itself is restorative and serving that function of allowing the body to recharge after a day of giving out. Okay. And in terms of, um, of going into the cues that, that, that a client can expect to see in terms of their own assessments, it's, it sounds like the, 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 the main thing they want to look for is how they feel when they awake and also in terms of, of their, their first morning heart rate. Um, yeah. Besides that, are, are there any other, any other markers they can be looking for uh, that just on a day-to-day basis, or are those two things that are the two things to focus on? Those two, you know, assuming no technology is being used, because yeah. you know, the, the, the monitors will measure how often you're turning in your sleep, which defines sort of sleep staging, so there's value in that. Um, sleep latency is a really important thing, which is how long it takes you from getting into bed to falling asleep, um, and often in itself reflects potentially poor sleep hygiene, so if the body is, has got a worrying mind, you know, lots of people um, turning off the light, clicking on the iPhone, checking the emails is the last thing they do, or checking social media, or checking BBC 24-hour news, or, or other news channels, I should mention. Um, you know, you, you're in that position where, just as you're trying to convince your body that, that all is calm and all is well, um, you go and stimulate it with, with all the things that are going on in the world. So time to fall asleep is an interesting metric. How refreshed on waking, excessive dreaming undoubtedly, and energy levels through the course of the day are good, sort of easily reportable things that say, yeah, my sleep is or isn't robust. Okay. 
What sort of uh, what's what's the window between the last program you watch on TV and when you get to bed? How long would you reckon? I think ninety minutes that you mentioned previously. Is that is that a, is that a good ninety one? minutes? Is as good as guess as any, you know? And, yeah. And, okay. Fair enough. And the science would be based on a, on a couple of key principles. One is there's this question mark around blue light. So the blue light being radiated by our screens seems to tie in a little bit with um, with the frequency of, of light that the brain associates with being awake. You know, we run on a 24-hour clock, and part of that clock is a little part of our brain identifying when it's light, I should be awake, and when it's dark, you know, I should be asleep, which makes it tough for people to work night shifts. You know, But that clock is confused by me living in a house with artificial light and then me accessing blue light right up to the moment I get to sleep. Because traditionally, my body would expect it to be dark for several hours before I go to sleep. So it's question one on blue light. And, and there's now blue light filters on some devices and blue light glasses you can get as a, as a methodology to allow you to keep accessing technology late, late into the evening. Second question is stimulus. What have I just watched? You know, if I've watched some particularly brutal um, horror movie, which not my speciality, but, you know, then, then it's sowing thoughts that will play out into my sleep and my dreams. You know, so is a comedy better than an action thriller? Undoubtedly. Is something familiar better than something new? Undoubtedly. But that is down to the, the, the particular perception of the individual and how sensitive they are. So 90 minutes is one of those good line in the sand sort of things that says, hey, after 90 minutes of no blue light and not having watched something you had to problem solve or adrenalized you, you know, I've watched a few box sets recently which get my heart thumping, you know, that's not too dissimilar from having you know, a little cu- cup of espresso. And I wouldn't have an espresso at 10 o'clock at night, so why should I expect to watch you know, a dramatic box set with a cliffhanger and then fall into a deep sleep moments later? You know, we, we're taught as children about the value of winding down. You know, I had the, the great blessing to have twins. So for us, sleep routine and sleep hygiene was essential because we needed two individuals running on a similar sleep cycle. If I rev those children up, 30 minutes before they go to sleep, it's a very different pattern to if that routine is consistent, has a light-dark component to it, has reading of familiar stories and, and things that we might have all experienced as children that led to us sleeping wonderfully, that we drop in adulthood with the introduction of 24-hour news, accessibility of box sets, accessibility of stimulants, regular use of alcohol, and suddenly the things that, that used to work are no longer part of our life and we question why we're not sleeping well. On the matter of, of eating as well, because I know I have some clients who train a bit later in the, um, in the evening, and therefore they'll be eating after they train. Yeah. Would the same rules apply to that in terms of you want to try and have it where you're not noshing 90 minutes before you go to bed? Is, is that a fair... In an ideal world, so from a sort of gastric emptying point of view, you don't want to be going to sleep with a full stomach, which 90 sure. minutes, two hours, depending on, on what it is. Ideally, clearly the, the benefit of post-exercise um, eating is, is essential yeah. you know, with, with that component to, to good quality sleep, not having poor blood sugar balance during the night as well, which, which could disrupt a good night's sleep. It's, it's a tricky one because you know, if you're training late in the evening, then there's that question mark between how stimulating that is, the need to eat, and then trying to force your body to fall asleep. And in some cases, we found that actually pushing the sleep time back to allow those processes to take place meant that the person had a better quality sleep, albeit a slightly shorter sleep duration. And say, don't squeeze this all into an unnatural sleep time. You're coming one step back. A regular sleep time 
and sleep routine is, is well advocated and, and, and a very sensible thing to have. But rather go to sleep when the body has wound itself down, has digested its food at a slightly later time than squeeze your body to try and fall asleep when it's still got you know, the, the post-exercise endorphins racing and the stomach full of, of partially digested protein. Okay, so that, that, that's, that's actually good. That's good news because it, it, if I understand correctly, then uh, the notion of, of quality over quantity still applies. So, so in terms of six quality hours beats eight quality hours as long as you've, allowed, you've, you've actually consciously allowed yourself to wind down. Without a doubt. You know, and, and if you get the shorter period of deeper sleep, people will feel better on that. And, and again, when we, when we strip away this concept of time is all that matters... You also strip away some of the panic around sleep. That, that I've got to go to sleep because I've only got seven hours. It's like, actually, what I'm going to do now is some behaviors that really unwind me, that really bring my body to a state of calm. And then the time I get, I still reckon I'll get that deep sleep proportion because that's where I'm going to get all my energy from. There's, of course, a lower limit to that. You know, some people you hear functioning on four or five hours sleep. Are they physiologically anomalous? Who knows? Were they, in, you know, were they suffering from other elements? Who knows also? But taking away that pressure of it's all about the time and if I don't get the time, I'm going to be tired does allow a little bit of flexibility to say, okay, I finished my game of football at 9 o'clock tonight. Rather than make sure I'm in bed by 11, I'll make that 11.45, but I'll make sure that my body's calmed down. I've eaten my food. I've had a shower. I've taken some time to just let my body come to a place of stillness. And then I would hope that that sleep will be better quality than if I just jumped into bed chasing seven, eight, eight hours as I might do normally. I know you've mentioned before about different interventions to, to assist with, with sort of getting the best sleep you can, yeah. i.e. Uh, Epsom salt bath and that kind of thing. Yeah. What sort of interventions can you recommend to someone to help improve, um, to improve their sleep routine? Yeah. Alcohol out, just a no-brainer. You know, okay. When you look at alcohol the way we, or you look at sleep cycles and sleep physiology as we do, you don't drink during the week because you know it's very, very difficult to recover. I say that to birthday or a special occasion or I've not got a bad day the next day, great. But, you know, the people who do an exercise session coming home having a glass of wine, if they could see the, the diminished returns they get on that training session, it would be absolutely incredible. And we can show them that. So alcohol, number one. Stimulants would be number two. You know, we see people who are fast metabolizers of caffeine and people who are slow. And if you're a slow metabolizer of caffeine, you know, it's, it's an, an eight... 10-hour half-life, you know, sorry, yeah, four-hour half-life, so it could be in your system eight, 10 hours. So anything you're having after sort of two o'clock, three o'clock is, is still in your system, keeping you wired and awake right into the evening. So that's, that's hugely important. So a cutoff on stimulants, which we would normally say two o'clock or three o'clock is a sensible sort of line of best fit. Alcohol, not on evenings I've trained and not on evenings where I need good quality recovery. Um, blue light and stimulus of, of television or anything dramatic 90 minutes before the person goes to sleep some transition between the day and the evening as in if I work at home work in a suit change into my comfy clothes you know some kind of physical message the day has ended and, and calm has begun that doesn't mean I don't enjoy my job but I need to give my body a very clear physical trigger that I've moved from one state to another a shower on arrival home again we would normally Advocate with our clients having a lavender-based shower gel in the evening, lavender very associated with, with alpha brain waves and calming the brain down, and then some kind of 
different aromatherapy smell in the morning, something citrusy and, and rejuvenating. So I'm starting to, to give my body that sense of I'm in an environment here which is associated with, with calm and sleep. Um, 24-hour news, a big issue with, with many clients, absorbing the, the worries and concerns of the world, which are unsolvable, certainly over the night. Anything that, that we see in that evening routine that would cause them to lie in bed still thinking. You know, there are, there's great value in meditation, not necessarily just before you go to bed, but in the evening as being a really dense concentration of, of accumulated relaxation and recovery. And if you've got that individual doing some, some light exertion in the evening, changing clothes, showering, no alcohol, cutting down stimulants, not watching too much late night TV, uh, if they weren't sleeping great before all that, they'll be sleeping better after all that, undoubtedly. Whether they're sleeping enough is, is a question mark. And it's, it's an important point to note, some people have a true sleep disorder. You know, the, the one we most commonly see is something called sleep apnea, which is like a sort of very advanced form of snoring where the, the airways collapse to a degree that you actually starve your body of oxygen. And it sort of wakes you up frequently, stops you going to those deep sleep cycles. And those people, you know, are, are suffer from, from proper levels of exhaustion. So, you know, once you've done your sleep hygiene stuff, if it's not changing, there's still that question mark of maybe is there something like a sleep apnea that I would like to get excluded? It's a good checklist because if you, um, like I said, sleep is one of those subjects that it is so dense and so there's such a broad spectrum of different bits of advice that you can go with. And from what it sounds like, the best thing to do is have two shower gels, one a.m. and one p.m. It, 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 does, lavender, yeah. it does no harm at all, you know, and that lavender one, and you know, light. So you know, if we if we just play the principles of a light dark cycle, this is blackout blinds, no lights in the in in the bedroom. Yeah, you know, someone who's not getting restorative sleep, if they do three of the things we talked about, they'll get a benefit. Four of the things, they'll get a benefit. So you know, it, it's often that that that, and that doesn't help because sometimes it's the myriad of choices that confuse people. But I would pick one, and and I would always start with alcohol, and say if alcohol comes out you will sleep cycle far better and restore energy much better. That, that, is, that is a no-brainer. And then stimulants and some of the other things following closely behind. Okay. And in terms of um, removing that stimulant to find out the benefits, what sort of a time frame would you expect to see change? I mean, if you re- remove the stimulant on that day, you'll see a benefit that day. If you remove the alcohol that day, you'll see a benefit that night. You know? So those are pretty acute things. You know, if... If you're looking at the, the more latent things that won't have an impact straight away, meditation needs to be given time. Yeah. Increasing <clears throat> cardiovascular fitness will have an impact, needs to be given time. Um, you're, the, the, there's no one sort of 50% thing here. These are 2% benefit here, 3% benefit sure. there. So the point at which the person says, hey, I'm waking up now feeling more restored might be the accumulation of some pretty acute things and some more chronic things over a period of weeks. And it's making sure that you're evaluating the summation, not the individual night. So saying, okay, over the next four weeks, I'm going to add in three of these things so consistently that I've got a real chance to evaluate whether they did or they didn't work. Um, and, and that should have a big impact on what you eat for breakfast and how, how urgently someone craves that morning coffee. Okay, so it's, it sounds like it's a, it's, if there's no magic bullet per se, it's about looking at things in, in total yeah and there's no magic bullet for, for anything you know, the, the key is maybe sometimes not to choose what we call the 1% choices ahead of the, the bigger percent choices so don't expect a lavender shower gel to save a deep rooted sleep problem you know as part of a combination of reducing alcohol reducing caffeine 
decreasing your stimulants, you know, in terms of, of TV watching or, or business interactions late at night, it's going to play a role. But to expect one small thing to change something as, as sort of deep-rooted as sleep is, is not going to work. Well, at what point would you suggest to seek professional help for sleep? Yeah, I think the point where, where the individual is, is truly got a, you know, what might be an insomnia where they're, they're not falling asleep for certainly you know, anything over 60 minutes would be interesting. There's probably some definitive cutoffs on that that, that I'm not bringing to mind but you know the inability to fall asleep is always a really interesting and important trigger you know and if that fatigue that they're experiencing from poor quality sleep is directly affecting their ability to work or their ability you know certainly if someone's falling asleep during the day and there's a questionnaire that's used um, which a GP would use to determine the level of daytime sleepiness and they use that to, to quantify whether someone needs um, to have the, the sort of sleep apnea investigations done um, and in many cases, that questionnaire itself is is diagnostic. So if you're exhausted during the day, falling asleep during the day, then sleep can't be doing its full job. A, a general practitioner will have a very simple way of evaluating whether that is chronic or not. And if not chronic, then into all those things around sleep hygiene, which will play a role, undoubtedly. But even if someone's got a sleep issue, those things will help. But if there's a bigger issue underlying, um, again, why play with the one percenters when, when you need to, to tick off a big thing? If someone's got sleep apnea, they might need a machine that helps perfuse their airways with oxygen and all the lavender oil and, and shower gel in the world isn't, <laughs> is, isn't going to get them, you know, to full beans. For the record, I don't sell shower gel for a living. <laughs> no, that's very helpful. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Pleasure, James.